welcome to another episode of the Thereafter Podcast. Thereafter Podcast. I believe this is going to be episode seven. We're going to put this one out as episode seven, so I'm going to commit to it now. Ah, uh, seven. The number of completion. Cody has got to just get it done. Uh, <laughs> our executive producer who makes all these podcasts possible. Big shout out to him. We're so glad you're here. Um, today's guest is Michael Robinson. Michael is an old friend of mine. He is a serial entrepreneur, uh, has planted multiple churches, pastored multiple churches, came from a, uh, pastor, uh, a ministry family, um, third generation. I think he says in the podcast, uh, third pastor, yeah. Yeah fourth generation pastor's kid so uh we were just honored to have michael michael was was originally slated to be our first guest that's right yeah uh and it didn't end up happening uh and so we finally got uh him uh, on the show and we're excited to share that interview with you today so uh without further ado josh do you have anything before we get into the interview oh no michael's awesome i was just it was my first time meeting him and uh I was surprised how like your guys is, I mean, you guys go way back. <laughs> yeah. Didn't yeah. know. Way, way, way back, man. Yeah. He, uh, was pastoring and, and yeah, I used to like really, uh, Twitter stock Michael. <laughs> it's funny what he said about like, let's not get involved with this church. <laughs> yeah. He got good. He got good counsel good counsel so uh yeah so he was almost gonna join my cult <laughs> maybe when i start my next cult when josh and i start the thereafter cult <laughs> maybe able to rope michael in see if he can be on staff <laughs> and pay him nothing and pay him nothing just abuse him so he doesn't want to live anymore yep so right. the tables have turned. Here, let's get into the interview. This is Michael Robinson. He's incredible, uh, and uh, you're going to love every moment of it. Uh, we're here, Cortland Coffee, with uh, Josh Annemeyer and our guest, Michael Robinson. Josh, Michael, say hello. What is up? Hey. Hey, I'm just glad to be here and, you know, like having somebody on the other end who knows how to pronounce my last name and say it correctly, so... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like like the Swiss Family Robinson, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. It's the bane of my existence. I'm telling <laughs> you, like having having a randomly missing letter in the in your last name throws everybody off. Well, then yep. you're, you're like, is it Robinson? Is it Robison? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and then the, the crazy thing is most people say Ro Robertson or, you know, something just completely out of left film. Like that doesn't, that doesn't even work. It's not even there. Those letters aren't even in there. Yep. Oh my gosh. Now that's true. I saw this thing yeah. where you could read, I think it was like a whole paragraph and they took out all of the vowels and yep. left all the consonants and you could still read it. Yeah. It was nuts. It's crazy how elastic the brain is, you know, yep. like to, to the, the muscle memory kind of thing. It's, it's wild. Truly. Yeah. No, I'm just like, I'm stoked to be here. Like, and, and I'm even going to say this cause normally, you know, most of the time people go in and do their thing. But of course I, you know, I have to say Cortland, I, I like, I'm stoked just to be here because you and I share, you know, some crazy stories in the background and some similar parts of our story and journey, 
And, uh, you know, it's always good for me to be able to come in and, and spend time to share, to talk, to, you know, explore in, in all the journey process with somebody who I know is very like-minded and Josh, you know, listening to the content and what you guys have been putting together, like it, it's amazing. And I'm just excited to be here. Thank you. That's great. Cool. Yeah. We're, we're, we're excited to have you. We have no idea what we're doing, but we're, uh, slowly figuring that out as we go. And, and yeah, I, I vibe with that. I, I connect with, you know, there's so few people who, uh, I still talk to from my years in ministry yeah. <laughs> or who will still talk to me or however that works. Right. Uh, so it is always cool to connect with somebody who is also, you know, going through their own, you know, reconstruction and, and, you know, uh, trying to figure out what, what life looks like on the other side of it, because it's, it is, it's easy. It's, it was easy for me for the first couple of years to just totally put it all behind me and just try to like restart. And just like when people mention 10 years ago, I pretend like I just was born, you know? (laughs) Right. I'm telling you it is, and it is crazy, right? You kind of segment things off. You're like, I don't not like it's so much of my life is kind of segmented into like, you know, part A, part B, which I think, you know, people go through that. It's not like it's something about me is so unique that it's, you know, it's just really crazy unicorn kind of thing. But, you know, it is funny because life is so good now that when I and it was good before. But it's a different kind of good because there's a lot of peace to it. And obviously, I'm sure we'll we'll break down a lot of those changes and things and journey and all that stuff. But it's funny to me when I look back at that first half of life. And and like you, so much of it was spent working in church ministry and leading churches and, you know, religious focus and all those different things that now I look back and my life looks so different today. And it it's wild, even though the core of who I am and even the core values to a lot of things aren't any different. It's it's just the way life plays out today versus 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and that's one of the things that that has been cool about this podcast, about your podcast, uh, which we'll plug here right at the beginning. You want to tell everyone about your podcast real quick and we'll, we'll talk about it more at the end. I'm sure. Why not? Because we're all in this together, right? Creating content and putting stuff out there. So yeah, I host a a podcast called Behind the Veil. And, uh, you know, a lot of ways you and I, we we address things the same way, kind of peeling back the layers, looking at the depth of things, really um, exposing stories and ideas and concepts. So it's, it's been a fun journey. I mean, I, you know, had my good friend, Nicole on there. She, like us, she was in ministry, a pastor, all that kind of stuff. Now she's got one of the top only fans page and makes her money as a stripper. So it's, you know, crazy stories like that to my last guest was the prime minister of Haiti. So, you know, it, it, and every story is different and every journey is different and it's just fun to unpack the the underside of things that's that's the thing yeah. that like i was having this conversation this last week with a coworker and we're talking and we started talking about covid and started talking about uh politics and all this stuff and then you know of course any conversation with me we get into like you know old testament you know uh you know uh, right. uh you know start talking about the bible start talking about you know jewish tradition and christian tradition and and we go on for like two hours and I had to tell him, I was like, man, thank you for, for listening to me ramble about, you know, Christology and because right. there's so few people in, uh, there's so few people who care about that. It, it feels this way. And I'm finding out this is not true, but it feels like there's so few people who care about like, you know, uh, you know, Christology and, and fucking, you know, the Bible and, and tradition right. and religion and spirituality who, who, are willing to hear it from an atheist, you know, perspective, 
Uh, And there is so few people who care about that stuff who want to hear from it about it for me you know right that's how it's felt. i'm realizing that's not true actually there is a right. whole community of people who want to talk about those things yeah it, it's interesting i you know i started working with this company this fall and it's a it is a christian owned family oriented type business it's very southern in, in, at its core if you want to get into stereotypes but one of the guys that i worked with that that actually trained me into the position and and got me oriented with the company um I think one of the interesting things with him is he's got he's he's kind of the opposite in the sense that he went from non-religious to his deconstruction was deconstructing non-religious background into being hyper-religious. And so I spent, you know, a few weeks riding around with him every day, eight hours a day, you know, talking and having these conversations. And I, it, it was interesting to me because I can listen and I can vibe with that and I can roll with it because I, you know, I've it definitely grew up in it. And so it's so second nature to me to easily move with those conversations. And as I got to know him and kind of have that comfort level with him a bit more, I think he was a little taken aback because I was jumping in there going, Hey, but have you ever thought about it this way? Did you ever ask this question? Because, you know, it's kind of like this year at Christmas that, um, my ex-wife loves to read the Christmas story. She loves that tradition with our kids. And, and I do in a lot of ways, but it's funny when I find myself reading the Christmas story and you get to things like the three wise men and you start to think about that for a minute, these guys were astrologers who were reading star charts, who are following myth and lore, they go look for Jesus. And then of course, you know, we pretty the story up, like we do in a lot of religious things, but we pretty the story up like, okay, these guys just went and followed a star and all of a sudden they're looking at a baby in a manger. They didn't show up till Jesus was like three years old. Like these guys went on this like (laughs) mythology, Lord of the Rings kind of adventure from (laughs) Asia into Africa, basically, and went looking for this idea of a, a king that I don't even think they knew what the idea was. You know, I don't yeah. think at the core, the, the way we put it, you know, they weren't looking for the savior. They were looking for a deity. They were, these were, these were men of like stature who wanted to be connected to a king. And I can't help but think sometimes in the underside of the story that these guys did it in a lot of self-serving ways, because if they were, they were guys of social stature, if they could attach themselves to a a deity or, or a king or royalty when they're little, then the rest of their lives are better because they're best friends with the king, you know? And it's, you know, when you read that and I'm reading that, and of course all that's playing out in my head as I read the story to the kids and I'm like, my kids aren't there yet. They're not old enough to process this stuff, you know? But then I'm like angry. I'm like, why can't I teach this to my kids right now? Why can't they get this? Like this story in this book that is like a written, like a fairy tale and it's so jacked up. It doesn't even work. Yeah, dude, I can relate so much. My my son will be nine in a couple of weeks, and so many conversations we had. We had the like where do babies come from conversation, yep. and it 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 transpired into like a forty five minute like diatribe for me <laughs> talking about like well this is like sex, but sex doesn't have to be for procreation, and sex can be between one man, one woman, or one man and one man, or two women and two you know. And it, I, I started yeah. going into like, but it doesn't just have to be procreation, but it can be for pleasure, but it doesn't have to be for pleasure, and there's a ton of different ways to do sex. And he was like. <laughs> I didn't ask for all this, Dad. Hey, the little nine-year-old head's about to explode. I, I feel like, you know, my my oldest son just turned 15. And so, you know, we're having more, definitely more proactive conversations as, as father-son. And, of course, they're the awkward conversations now, right? Because he's definitely in that age where he's well into puberty. He's well into the hormones. He's well into his, his whatever his version of exploration in, in life and sexuality is going to be. 
And it's funny to sit down because obviously the spectrum of my story and my life, having been married to his mom and now having a husband, which we can probably unpack more of that story as we go. But, you know, for from him at his age, he's definitely seen the spectrum of things and he's yeah. definitely experienced it. So he's it's not I don't think it's curious for him. But when you start to try to put definitions on it at 15, he's like, oh, my God, my dad's literally talking about all of it, except, <laughs> except on the other side of this thing. Like, then there's the realization, oh, my God, my dad's literally been on all sides of this. Like, yeah. what do I do with that? <laughs> <laughs> so so let's let's backtrack a little bit before yeah. we get because we could just keep going and going on under the next thing. But uh, why don't you kind of give your uh, as as I don't want to put any time limit on it, but as packaged as you can give your background sure. story, start, you know, maybe by, you know, you were a church kid. You grew up in, you know, you're a, you're a child of a ministry family, correct? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I grew up deep, deep in the Southern Baptist church in the South. And, uh, you know, I say it all the time. I'm a preacher's kid, grandkid and great grandkid. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just, you know, every moment spent in church, the social circle was church, you know, every decision that, that our family made, whether it was where we went on vacation to who we hung out with to who my friends were growing up, it was all built around that community of the church that we were a part of. And it was good. Like, I don't look at that as a negative. Like everything, I look back at my childhood, I look back at growing up with very few exceptions and have anything to think, but man, it was fantastic. I'm very grateful for it. Um, But, and it's funny because then like when I was in high school, being a preacher's kid, like watching my dad go through the hell of working for a church, I was like, I'm never doing that. I will never live through this. And then like four years later, that's exactly what I did. And I did it for (laughs) nearly 20 years, (laughs) you know, and I I say it often. I picked up the mantle and carried on the family business basically. Right. Keep the dynasty going. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and I think there was uh, being the oldest of, of my siblings and the oldest of five, uh, for me, I think there was obviously some expectations from the parents, the grandparents and whatnot, that that's exactly what I would do. And, you know, it definitely made them very proud. And, you know, really over that time, like that was, there were good years. Like I was for all intent and purpose, very, very successful at what I did, um, in ministry and doing church. And, you know, I look back at the time, like, I, like a lot of, I, you know, I ended, I ended my career in the church as a senior pastor, but like everybody else, I started working with student ministry and, you know, <laughs> in my, my years of student ministry, like I remember taking a youth group from 12 kids to over a thousand kids in three years, you know, the kind of growth metrics and success things. And, but they, I mean, they were exciting. And I, th- those kids that they're not kids anymore, they're in their thirties now, but you know, those kids that I was leading at the time, like they, they're now peers and friends and they still have lifelong relationships with those folks. And, you know, even the transition into being a senior pastor in my early or really mid twenties and, Um, you know, those journeys, they were all good, but, you know, underneath, um, you know, the core component of my reality of my story is when I was in high school, I was very aware that I was not straight. Um, that was not something like, it wasn't a question. Like I didn't have to go through the, like, Hmm, I wonder what's true for me. Like that wasn't a question at all. I was very clear on it, but I was also very clear based on the way I was raised that that either meant I was just going to go straight to hell or, you know, there's some, some negativity obviously attached to that. You couldn't be a part of the church. You're going to lose your family. You go to hell. God doesn't love you. You know, all of those things. That's, that's the place where I had to really wrestle for a long time. And, 
you know, during those years, I tried many different ways and times to express that, to come out, you know, things would get out there. And then, you know, my family's response would be, all right, let's go to counseling. You know, and I remember, I think it became more real to my parents because like most teenage boys, they found my secret stash of pornography and it was not, you know, what they would have expected from their teenage son. And, you know, so I'm in, I, I remember sitting across from this horrible counselor in this counselor's office one day and he goes, when you look at that kind of porn, does it turn you on? Do you touch yourself? I'm like, seriously, you're asking a teenage boy if naked bodies turn him on and he touches himself. Like what dead? Like, yes. Like, yeah, what yeah. And if, if a teenage boy tells you, no, He's lying. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm more into the artistic expression. Um, you know. yeah, so like, yeah, I read Playboy for the articles. You know, I mean, yeah, it's just exactly. that, you know, so, you know, I look back at some of these things, but, I, you know, because I, I really do have such a great relationship with my family and I really did want that approval, you know, I, I locked it down, got things in order. And genuinely, I think I really wanted to be what, you know, at that time I thought was, quote, normal. You know, I wanted to fit into the norm. I wanted to fit the mold. I wanted everything to just work the way it did. And, you know, during high school, I met my ex-wife, Allison, and she and I just, we're great friends. And I mean, Cortland, you've met Allison, you know, like you've seen us together. Like we still get along great. We have a great relationship, great friendship, always have. And I think after, you know, we dated for five years because we, A, we were so young when we started dating. But then I think at the, that point, like you spend so much time, you're just like, whatever, like I'm still young. So I could always justify like, this is why, because people would ask, are you ever going to get married? Are you guys going to tie the knot? You know, it's kind of like, and it was always easy for me to joke around and be like, I need to get through puberty before I get married or, you know, jokes like that. Cause we were so young and, um, you know, but for me, I was kind of like, really like, can I commit to this? Can I do this? Is this the right thing to do? And, you know, ultimately because I started working for the church uh, I needed to be married. That was kind yeah. of the, the assumption, you know, you work for the church, you can't be single. Cause if you're single and you work for the church, then you're probably going to molest somebody or, you know, create odd situations in the church or something, you know, there's all these assumptions. And, um, and then there's the yeah. assumption that just because you're married and start a family means you're more stable, you know, yeah. like and we can obviously <laughs> look at the, the crap and the failings of many people who lead in the church who, we're married with children and that didn't really, you know, make them stable human beings either. So yeah, it goes back to this, this script. We talked a little bit with Janice Legata about, yeah. you know, that, you know, married with a kids is, you know, man married to a woman with yep. kids is kind of that script and that, that just that cookie cutter and that template for mm -hmm. this is how you go to the next phase. Right. And that's, that's one of the narratives that I've really had to like process a lot through coming out of it was, and I don't know if Josh, Josh and I were in, you know, Josh was a part of, uh, uh, we haven't even said the name and, and I don't even want to part <laughs> of the ministry we were in, yeah. uh, early on before I met you, uh, Michael and, I think I probably said to Josh, I said to multiple people at that time, there was a lot of other single guys involved who were like, right. I just want to get married. I just want to find mm -hmm. my soulmate. And I remember feeling like, I, I don't. <laughs> like, right. I, have no, I have no desire to be married, no desire to have children, no no romantic yearning or longing yeah. uh, like so many other guys genuinely did. But for me, it was like, but this is how you get to the next stage. Right. Yeah. Especially being young, you know, I came in at 17 when right. I took over the youth group at our, at our church, our ministry, uh, I was 19, you know, yeah. 
And so yeah. who's going to trust their, you know, 16 year old daughter right? to go to youth group with a 19 year old youth pastor <laughs> right. unless that motherfucker is married. Well, you know? you know, what's really right. funny about this is when I stepped into that very first job working for a church in, in student ministry is right before Allison and I got married and I took over because the guy before me, it was, he was kind of the same thing. He was 19, 20. He left the position because he was getting engaged to one of the 17-year-old girls so they could run off and get married. And like, and it, they, they're still married. They have a great relationship, a great marriage. And like, I get it. Yeah. Like two years at that stage in life is not enough difference for that to yeah. really be technically an inappropriate thing. Now, you know, 35 and 17, that's a whole different story. Yeah. We see we got plenty of those stories out there. But And, and part of that is pro the problem with the fact that youth ministry and youth pastors in the culture I came out of was that's that was the junior league. That was the B team. Right. that warmed you up to take a real position as a pastor. So you right. kind of had to do your time. So there was nobody who was in, I mean, not nobody there. I do know 30, 40 year old yeah. youth pastors, but, but very few, I mean, because yeah. oftentimes by 30, by 35, by 40, you want to go and do real church. You want to go talk to yep. the real adults and, and have your own church and, and whatever. Um, so, right. so many of the people leading youth ministries were 1920 because it's kind of an, an entry level, level job, right? right. We'll see how he does yeah. with, with the kids. Yep. I'm telling you. Well, you know, for, for me, that was a big, big piece of it. And, you know, we got, so Allison and I got married and, um, and you know, funny, typical, one of those, like a side story with church stuff, you know, we were getting married, we were young, you know, I'm in this prominent church working. And so, and then her family was prominent in the town we lived in at the time. So when we start planning this wedding, all of a sudden, I think our guest list was like over 350 people. And then people just always assuming because you're on staff at the church, they're invited no matter what, you know, like, obviously, this is going to be like a public event or whatever. But except the difference was at that time, my, neither my parents nor her parents had enough money to pay for a wedding. So we were going to have to pay for this thing. And all of a sudden I'm looking at like 50 to a hundred thousand dollars to pay for a wedding. And finally, I just looked at her one day. I was like, we got to like, we need to do something different. Like, and she, so she wouldn't do it. Like she was like, you know, a piece, the people pleaser thing, which makes you really good at ministry, you know? Oh yeah. Um, and both of us struggle with it, but like, she didn't want to disappoint family. And I remember we went over to, to her family's house one, that was a Sunday evening. Hand out. She made the comment to her grandmother, what if we just ran off and had a small wedding? And her grandmother goes, I think that's the smartest thing I've ever heard you say. Two days later, we had our plane tickets booked. We went to Hawaii. We had just a few people join us and we got married on a beach. And it was it was a great wedding. It was a very simple. It's beautiful. Um, you know, and so for the next, you know, I was married to her for for just shy of 18 years. Um, you know, and we built a huge family. Um, you know, I've got a ton of kids. I've adopted a bunch of kids. We had kids, um, and they're great kids. Like it's it, just a, a cool, fun journey all the way through. Um, but of course, underlying all of this the whole time is this reality of, you know, what, what is my truth and what does that look like? And, you know, for her, she was aware, um, she wasn't ignorant to that, but I think we both had kind of this blind faith thing based on the way we were raised that if we prayed enough, we did enough, we kept the right things going, like this would eventually go away. It wouldn't be an issue. It would be manageable. And in 2014, which really uh, funny enough, that was, that was the year, you know, I ended up coming up there and spending time with you guys in Colorado some, and, you know, talking about the idea because things had kind of really fallen apart for me, I had a business go under, I had it, I had to shut the doors of my church plant, like things were just kind of messy. And I was trying to figure out where to land and where to go and what it was going to look like and never really got a good answer to that question. 
for myself and that fall i basically i just pulled the plug on trying anymore mm. and just that was kind of my screw you god moment i think like at, at its deepest level like i've i've done everything right i've done everything by the by the book by the formula by the ideas followed the teachings you know gone to these events and counseling and all these different things to try to fix it and i just kind of said forget it i pull you know let the brakes off and for the next year and a half of my life I, for lack of a better term, I was a giant slut. I mean, that's just really the best way to put it. Um, you know, it doesn't say a lot. Of, you know, I, I used to even say sometimes like, well, at least I wasn't pastoring a church when I went through this phase. You know, I didn't take down a church with me, but um, that probably would have been a much prettier thing to have pulled off than what it ended up doing to my family. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the damage that it caused to my ex-wife and, and really the long-term damage it, it means for my kids you know, that, that is still, still something that will be an ever present reality and certain relationships. But actually that season is not what ended my marriage. You know, like Allison and I had been such good friends. We were like, we can do this. Like, we're going to get through this. We're going to dedicate to this. We found a counselor who like, didn't think it was all doomed and going to fall apart and like was really positive, but realistic with us. And, um, so, you know, over those years, really about a three-year period, we went through hell and back again. And I think it really healed both of us in a deep way. Um, you know, healed our friendship, healed our relationship, healed our family, um, and but uh, more so us individually. Right? I think there, there's there's something. So I've I've got like three questions. Yeah, <laughs> there, but there's there's something to that. I think maybe a listener or somebody who is hearing this, you know, I, I would like to hear you talk more about in terms yeah. of, I think that there's assumption that when somebody is at this crossroads of really trying to like kind of for the first time, discover who they are and yeah. allow themselves to discover who they are. There's this um, assumption from the outside, the way we were conditioned was, well, that obviously must mean your relationship is bad or you're a bad person. And right. what I'm hearing you say is that that's not the case. Your, your no. relationship in terms of like your love for each other was strong. It wasn't like you were like, oh, I hate my wife. I hate my marriage. And then you were right. doing these things. It was not about her it was about you figuring yeah. out yourself yeah completely like mm -hmm. i and, and i think that was one of the hardest parts for her actually in this was like really being confused like we were actually in a good place in our relationship and our marriage as a whole like things for all intent and purpose were extremely healthy and they were from a relationship standpoint from that dynamic they were extremely healthy i was the one who wasn't healthy because I had, I had spent 30, 30, well, at that point, 34 years of my life basically just saying no to being honest about what is really there. And, you know, you spend so, and, and I think here's the scary thing. And I think all of us are susceptible to this, but I do think those of us who've worked in, in church ministry may be even more susceptible to this because we become accustomed and, and trained to tell people what they want to hear and make them feel better. And it is so much of our conditioning. And so I was, I, you know, I say it all the time, ministry groomed me to be a master manipulator and a great liar because Fuck, I can relate to that. Like Fuck. so good. And I mean, I still, I will war with that the rest of my life. Cause it's easy. It gets really easy to just say and say it well, what people want to hear. And 
at the same time, that same skill set allowed me to spend a year and a half doing whatever I wanted to, and nobody was the wiser to it. Everybody was in the dark. I mean, when it finally came out, like I was more floored that people were like, are you kidding me? That really happened? Like, and I'm like, seriously, like, what? how do you not see this? How did you not pick up on this? How did you not understand this? But, um, you know, but I think that was part of like, uh, you know, her struggle too was things were good. They weren't, and it wasn't a facade I put on for her. Like I would, I would travel out of town on business. I would do the things I was going to do while I was out of town and I would come home and everything was normal. I, I literally had, compartmentalized so completely and so normalized to myself that over here, I'm free to do all these other things. And when I get home, I didn't need to need them when I was home because everything at home was good. So it, the, the problem underneath is it was me that wasn't good. It was me that wasn't healthy because I wasn't being honest with myself, much less anybody else about what was really happening. And, you know, I think that's one of the most dangerous things, but you know, it's interesting because again, whether it's because we worked in the church or because we grew up in a religious environment, whatever that looks like for most of us who grew up in some form or or were groomed in some form of evangelical Christianity, conformity is so much a piece of the culture that we're basically not allowed to ask questions and challenge the, the system. And so you become, you get to this place where it's like, well, I, you know, I can't question this. I couldn't question, is it, is it actually okay to like have a relationship with God and be gay? Like that Mm -hmm. was, you didn't question that because you were told that's not even possible. You know, you didn't question whether or not it was okay to to wonder, should I have gotten married in the first place? Was this actually a mistake? You know, did I do the wrong thing by by trying to do the right thing? You know, all those mm-hmm. kind of questions that had to be wrestled with in the journey, you, you didn't have the freedom to ask that. And, you know, it, mm-hmm. and I think the thing that, that I've experienced and that, that I've seen other people go through is there's this integration in church community that says your sexual desire is tied to how you love people is tied to how you're a father is tied to how you love God is tied to, you know, it's, it's, you can't be a, you know, in the mind of, of my mind in early Christianity, my experience, like you couldn't be a good father and also, you know, sexually promiscuous, you know, right. because those things are tied together. Right. When in reality, they're not. No. Like the, those things have to do nothing with each other. Your your gender identity, your sexual orientation, your sexual practice, your relationship structure does yeah. not affect how you are a mother or a father. And and I, I get disgusted and frustrated with the church who, when the churches, when churches go like, well, we can't let a gay person work at our children's ministry. And I'm like, fucking why? Like, why? Right. Like, Right. But see, these are these weird underlying assumptions and stereotypes that have existed in the culture because we, I I try to unpack this so that it makes sense to a broader audience, but the, you know, so much of evangelical Christianity, again, it's that conformity idea, right? And so, and, and we also have this culture underneath that like, if it's outside the norm, if it's, if it's something we can hide and not talk about, then we can tolerate it. But if it's something that is actually going to be seen, then we have to exclude it because if it's seen and it might make people ask questions, we don't want to, we don't want it to be there. And so Mm -hmm. there was, and, and I saw that play out like for my, my parents, I think they're always a good example, um, 
of what that looks like because I don't question, I've never had to question that my parents love me. Like that was never like a warring thing that had to happen in my head. I honestly knew at the end of the day, it would be really tenacious when I came out and that it would be really hard for them. And we'd have some hard conversations and some hard moments, but I knew at the end of the day, my parents love me and they'll be there no matter what. But in the process, I remember, um, kind of after all the, all the junk was out and I, I got picked up at the airport one night on my way home um, from traveling and my parents picked me up. The weather was bad. They were doing their good deed or whatever. And the conversation, one of those hard conversations ensued in the car. And my mom made the comment, if you choose to live that life, I don't think I can be proud of you anymore. And, you know, A, it cut deep, but I had the understanding like, it's not me she couldn't be proud of. What happened is the public image gets tarnished and other people may start to question. So she's not, she doesn't know what to do with that, you know? And then those conversations that happen in a season, standing in my mom's kitchen one morning real early as we're, we're having a conversation through the tension and she made the comment like, I just, if you do this, I'm so scared that you're going to die of AIDS or get arrested for molesting little boys. Like there's so much of that stereotype that she knows that's not true about my character but so much of it is applied to a specific people group or stereotype. And we mm -hmm. accept that it's truth because we don't give ourselves the chance to be in proximity. And so without that proximity, it's easy to lean on those stereotypes because it justifies why we don't have that proximity. It justifies why we don't leave our comfort zone. It justifies why we choose to believe and stay that way so hard without being willing to ask the questions or make, make, you make strides in uh, enlightenment or awakening or whatever term you want to put on it. And, you know, looking at my mom and I use this example a lot cause I think I'm still like sometimes pinch myself that this, this conversation even happened, but uh, you know, fast forward now that I, I'm remarried and have an amazing husband and um, you know, have an amazing modern family. Like we all get along Christmas morning was so much fun. Like we, we Cameron and I went to Allison's house and we're all hanging out, opening gifts with the kids and giving each other gifts. And, you know, it just, we've made it work, you know, amidst tensions. I mean, it's not like it's all rainbows and roses and ponies yeah. and unicorns and all that. It's not, but you know, it, it's really, really good though. Overall, and I think because my family has been subjected to that proximity, because Allison and I made a decision at the very beginning, we're going to remain friends and we're going to not just for the kids, like for our own selves, too. And, you know, we even gave each other like the ability to veto who we bring into our lives. So like when Cameron first came to town and was kind of exploring being here, the first stop after he got off the plane and we dropped off his bags at, at my house was to go to dinner with Allison so she could give me her assessment. And did I pick a good person? You know, like we we just so all, all of that kind of stuff has played out and over time and it's taken years, but over time. Um, it led, led to a conversation where my mother called me. She said, you know, I, I was always raised to believe that if you pray fervently believing what you're praying for, fervently asking God for a certain result, eventually you get it, which I laugh internally. Cause I'm like, that sounds like witchcraft formulas and jackpot <laughs> machines and playing the lottery or whatever, you know? And, and it just, it, it's just one of those things I shake my head. I'm like, at what point are we so great that we can do all the right things and manipulate God's choices and behaviors? It's just that doesn't make any sense with what we say about who God is anyway. So yeah. it's just this weird, you know, this stretching that happens and mentally you just go, I can't even jump through those hoops. It doesn't work. And, 
but but what she said to me that day, she goes, I had to stop praying for God to fix you. And I was like, really? Why is that? She goes, because if God fixes you, you lose Cameron and our family loses Cameron and he won't be there anymore. And I don't want that. And that'll mm. be the, probably the closest statement I'll ever get out of my, my, my mother or anybody in my family to come to a place of being affirming to some extent. Um, yeah. but I'll take it. Like, I'm okay with that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I, you know, I look at my mom and I like, she's, cause again, she's a preacher's kid too, you know, and she's 63 years into her life of being very fervently in, and she's got a degree in, in theology. Like, I mean, she's trained at the highest level to believe the things she believes. So for her to make a statement like that and deviates, you know, even the slightest bit like that off of center for herself, I'm like, this is God. I, I literally actually, I hung up the phone, Cameron was sitting on the couch and I looked at him. I was like, God just parted the Red Sea again. Like I just yeah. saw it in real life. This is amazing. <laughs> you know? That's great. I, yeah. I really appreciate uh, what you said about proximity. And I feel like, like that proximity and allowing yourself to be in proximity, allowing yourself to be number one, a listener. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that will allow you to be vulnerable. The amount of healing that I have experienced relationally through that, um, yeah, is it's been incredible, and you know, especially I just remember, um, you know, in in Protestant church or in evangelical, there's a lot of you know thoughts and things that go on about like how we even treat other people of other faiths um, yeah. or even other Christian faiths, right? Especially, yeah. I mean, I can bring up like you know um, how things I've heard about uh, Catholics and, you know, and all this stuff. And yeah. I remember going to a, uh, conference that was like half Protestants and half Catholics. Yeah. And we were all together and there was this big message about like, you know, unification and just stop hating each other. And we right. all were just like crying and hugging each other it was nuts. It was, it was yeah. amazing. Um, yeah. but it's, it's the strength of that proximity it is. And, you know, I think that's I, I say this often. I think one of the biggest things that shook my faith, and I think this was a bigger shift in my life, honestly, than coming out late in life. Like, to be honest with you, that, yeah, that was that had a lot more physical outplay of, of struggle and emotion. But the deconstruction and reconstruction of my my view of God and my view of the faith that I was raised in I was just shattered and broken into a million pieces when I went to Israel the first time. And, you know, cause I was being the good mega church pastor and I took my first trip to Israel cause you have to, you know, you can't be, you can't speak for God if you haven't been to the Holy land. Right. I mean, this is like, yeah. you know, it's, it's again, it's those hierarchy working your way up the deal, but, but because I love to travel because I love to learn, I love culture. You know, I saw it much more than, you know, a step for my ministry days. And, um, but I remember, and it, it's kind of what you just described, Josh, like that very first trip, I took a non-traditional way of doing it and it was by myself. And I have a friend who lives over there and who was mentoring me some at the time. And his wife is Israeli and grew up in, in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. And so I got a very unique view of getting to see the sites and get a get a picture of like the Bible and reality and experiencing some of those moments. And I, I think for me, there was a lot of proximity to the Jewish culture to the Muslim culture, mm -hmm. um, you know, to the Armenians, to the Catholics. 
And in all the trips that I took over there, every single time I went, I, I was able to have that proximity. And I was able to really dig in. And one of the most impactful things that happened to me was sitting with one of the guys who helped excavate the Dead Sea Scrolls that we, you know, so lean on our validity of the Bible and the scriptures itself. But this guy's still an atheist to this day. He's not a professed Christian or Jew or anything, but he doesn't deny the impact that these writings have had on his entire life. And so for me, there was a point of validity of seeing it, but it was also this challenge that most of that that was excavated was not written in Greek and Hebrew. It wasn't, you know, written the way we tend to like, certify scriptures through the Greek and Hebrew. Most of it that we have recorded that's historically there was written in the Aramaic language. And it is not that it completely changed everything. It didn't change everything. What it changed is the the perspective, which is, you know, this idea, the, the one of the scriptures that I saw, I actually saw it above a, a, a grotto in Jerusalem, but it was this, this scripture from John that says, you know, the word was made flesh and lived among men. And, you know, I was taught growing up theologically, that was God looked at Jesus and said, this place is screwed up. You got a job to do, get your ass down there and fix it. Like, that's really the understanding, like deeply, if you really unpack the theology, it was dad told son, get your ass up and get down there and fix this mess. Like you need to get it, do, do your job, you know? And that's the theology. Like, even though it wasn't taught to us, it was like, oh, God had sent his son to save us. But the theology underneath is God punished his son and sent him down here to die so he could fix our screwed up mess, you know? But what's interesting is in the Aramaic and the, the direct writings right out of what Jesus was saying, I think what I love the most about it is it said that the word chose to become the flesh and live a life among his creation. And there's such a difference in perspective of Jesus going, I want to be with my people. Like, I just want to be with them. Like, mm -hmm. that's it. And I think that just changes the whole thing, whether whether it's whether you believe the narrative of Jesus and the cross and the savior idea or not. The idea that a deity or a king or someone above or a creator says, I just want to be with my people. It's a different it's different than I need to fix my people because all of Christianity becomes this stupid theology of fix and repair that is so twisted. And it's all about I got to fix you, I got to repair you so I can measure the results and show you how good I am. Whereas Jesus didn't, you know, if he's supposed to be our picture of a creator of God and he shows up and that's not his objective, how did we get there? Like, at what point did we screw this up and get so effed in our heads that we think that's the way it's supposed to be when that wasn't demonstrated to us at any point? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and that's the thing that it through my deconstruction, you know, which was really kind of post deconversion, I deconverted yeah. first and then have kind of gone back and gone like, okay, now why do I not believe what I say? I clearly don't believe. Right. Um, but, but, you know, a lot of it had to do with like what I, what I learned was like a lot of this is new ideas, you know, I mean, right. a lot of these modernist ideas of salvation as an arrival, uh, a, a, as a point of transition, these are, these are new modern ideas that were not even concepts right in, in the time of Christ, in the right. time of, of, of early, you know, uh, the early church, et cetera there. I mean, their framework and their perspective was 100% different than ours. And, That's right. and I see so much resistance in the modern church to go, no, like Jesus didn't think the way that we think. Right. 
I just, I, you know, you, you and I have a, I have a mutual friend in Ruth Graham just because of the stuff that we did with the conferences together. Right. And yeah. I remember the first year that, that Ted put out, Ted Haggard put all that together and, you know, and Michael and I spoke to that year and it, you know, it was the first year. And of course, nobody knew who was going to be there because Ted never told anybody. So I'm sitting at the table and in walks Ruth, who basically I, I literally told her finally, and maybe a year later or something, this is the first time I met her, but I was like, she walked in, I was like, it's Billy Graham with boobs. Like she looks just yeah. like her dad. And <laughs> And then I was like, holy crap, I have to speak at the same event with somebody from Billy Graham's family. Like, this is very intimidating, right? It, it, yeah. in, in this mental thing. But I remember, I think it was like the second day in, I just looked at it and I was like, you know, it's really interesting to me that we've put such a bent on the theology in the church that you have to pray a prayer, walk an aisle, go through certain motions in order to be accepted into the club. And I, and I just looked her in the eye and I said, and your dad's one of the main reasons we do that. Yeah. And yeah. she goes, yep, you're exactly right. You know, yeah. and actually, and my, my worship pastor, Chuck, was with me, you sit next to me. And I said, and the other thing is, I went to your dad's last crusade in Nashville, because of course, you've got to go see Billy Graham preach. And it was a cool thing to see the event go off. But I said, you know, what's crazy to me? I was like, he's not a very good preacher. But I was like, but if you ask people to get up and come to the front, they did. Like he could command a crowd. Like he had yeah. a very unique power and ability, gifting to do that. But I thought Chuck was going to die and crawl under the table. He's like, you just told Ruth Graham that her dad's a bad preacher. <laughs> shade. Well, he was. He wasn't a great speaker. Like it just wasn't his thing. But I, I was like, that. but he knew how to create things to draw people in but it, it is so interesting because so you're exactly when you said modern in our culture that's what made me think about that because if you stop for a second and think what could be any more modern than what we see in the evangelical moment of of men like billy graham who i think is a great was a great man did some great things and we don't give him credit for the things he really deserves honestly like the fact that we're on a live broadcast right now his family owns the patent for the first live broadcast in television. Like they created yeah. it through Billy Graham Ministries and we don't even talk about that. So like there's so many things we don't give him credit for, for innovating, but we've hinged an entire tradition of an ancient belief system on a modern movement as if mm -hmm. it is the gospel truth and it's not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here's, here's, I want to switch directions for a second yeah. and, and ask you about, you know, one of the, one, when we met, so we met at a, at a ministry event put on by our mutual buddy, Ted Haggard, who, who yes. reached out to me a little while ago and was like, Hey, we should reconnect. And I haven't talked to him since. I think the last time I talked to Ted was when we, he was kind of chewing my ass out about being, inauthentic and disingenuous <laughs> about the yeah. way my fraud cult ministry fell apart. Right. Um, and, and then, so I probably owe like making amends with him at that. At some point, you know, it's funny because when, when I talked to you guys about that, he was, he was one of my phone calls that made me not make a move to Colorado. He's like, yeah, we really don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole, but that's another episode. Oh, but, you know, uh, uh, we were at this event and I remember seeing you there and, and, uh, we had connected previous to that on Twitter. I don't, yeah. you probably didn't know who I was. I knew who you were because you were the first person, you know, 
uh, you know, with, you know, 5,000 plus followers to reply back to one of my tweets or something. <laughs> and I remember being like, oh, holy shit, that's Michael Robinson. I know him on Twitter. I used, uh, to, be big, I used to be some big shit on Twitter one, back in the day, dude. man. And I even shut that account down. I had like 275,000 followers. I killed that account. And there are days, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I, I ended up with a check mark the whole nine. And there are days I look back, I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? I shut down my account. Yeah, know? no, I, but, I remember thinking like, this guy's big shit. I was yeah. like, I was like, and he's at this event and I'm getting to talk to him. And so that makes me think, so like for a lot of people who are in ministry now, um, yeah. but I think beyond that, the generation, which was, which is kind of like just after my generation, me. they live <laughs> with, <laughs> yeah, they, they, they live, they live the, 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 the future generation zoomers, you know, live with this idea that this persona that they make online through Facebook and TikTok right. and, and, and Instagram and whatever is them and it is right. it is it is an aspect that makes change and makes going oh i think differently difficult how did right. you deal with having because even when you talk about your church like falling apart or maybe this failing church plant or whatever you still had this huge audience of people right who had this image of michael and who yeah. he was what was that pressure like you know it it was awful in a lot of ways. I mean, like, no two ways about it because, and, and here's the problem, like we all move from success to failure to failure to success. Like it is just a cycle of life. And, but, but the harder part is the higher you rise in that process, when you have the next cycle of failure, which is an inevitable, the fall is a lot further and a lot harder. Right. And, you know, I think for me, you know, I'd gone through these pinnacles of ministry success for a decade you know, before things started getting really rough. And again, you know, I, I kind of in that, in that small name pastor world, I was in that top 10 list or whatever, you know, I don't even like, it's funny looking back. I really don't, I, maybe I have washed so, so much of that from my cognitive space, but, um, you know, I, I, I think it was hard because, because I'm a people pleaser and because I knew, you know, my whole life was built on keeping up a persona and, I think I basically kind of came to this breaking point. And I think it was through that season I broke and just said, screw you, God. And I, you know, went off the deep end and really nearly destroyed all of my life, not just, you know, walking through failure. I think I had to step back and go, failure really is just a part of the journey. And I have to choose to accept that. And the funny thing is that I've been teaching it for years because I could really understand walking with people who were hurt and broken and had gone through failure or living in failure. Or, you know, that was the the moniker that kind of preceded them moving into a room at any point. And yet I'd never given myself that much grace to be okay and embrace the failure, you know, and I think I kind of had to make that pivot. And that's actually part of the reason, like I shut down my social media because I, I gave up those accounts that had all those followers and all that stuff, because I realized like, I've built an I've built an idea for that audience that I'm going to succeed and that I'm somehow always good. And that's not real. And, you know, I kind of hit the reset and, and started from scratch. And it's funny now because you fast forward to, you know, two years ago, I'll never forget. I spoke at this entrepreneur business leaders conference and my buddy introduces me at the conference. And he, when he introduces me, he goes, nobody fails better than this guy. And I was like, who wants that as an intro when you walk on stage? And yet <laughs> it's a badge of honor for me because 
I just kind of embrace it. And I maybe sometimes I've had to ask myself, do I go after some failure now because of the learning experiences or because of the opportunity to convert that into an opportunity to teach? But I'm so non-risk averse and I'm not afraid of the failure that I think I run headlong into things that people would assume there's no way that's going to work. And a lot of them don't. It's not that people are wrong or they don't have the skill set. Some things aren't meant to work, but somebody's got to go down with the ship. So <laughs> if, yeah. you know, if you're brave enough, but it is hard, I think at times, you know, I, I've come so full circle when your entire life has to reset like mine did from the ground up. And I think after, you know, you look at your, you look your kids in the face and you have to go, you know, like your mom and I love each other, but this marriage isn't going to work. Like, you know, and that's the largest failure you could offer to somebody and you survive that and realize it all worked out and it's okay. I think you get to a place where anymore, I'm like, we'll just put it all out there. Who cares? If you like me, great. If you don't, fine. I don't care. Like yeah. the, the people who are important are always going to be there. And I think that's a big piece of this journey, whether it's a deconstruction of faith or walking away from that identity or coming out late in life or changing careers or, you know, surviving the ups and downs of whatever it is in life, you will find out as you do that, the people who are going to be there are going to be there. And, you know, I assumed so many times that certain people would disappear, they'd go away, they'd be disappointed. And there were plenty of those, plenty of those. But the vast majority of the people who are always my friends, are still my friends. They're still my circle. They're still the people that I talk to. They're still the people I lean into. And I think because I know that, and I'm sure of that, walking in or out of failure, is not scary anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's, here's the other thing that, that's, that I think that's a hundred percent true. Uh, and it's a difficult lesson. I think it's getting, becoming more difficult to learn in, the generation of everyone's got a persona and everyone's right. online and, yeah. and all of that is terrifying to me as a dad, you know, yeah. Yeah. Like everybody wants a hundred thousand YouTube subscribers and TikTok right. followers and, 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 and that happens. And then it's like, well, you're, you know, if, if I had a hundred thousand TikTok followers at 17, I, I would be a fucking mess, you right. know? I yeah. can't imagine oh, what listen, that would I'm be like. so thankful that I, I'm at the age I am because I think if I was 10 or 15 years younger than I am now, um, yeah, I, I would be a mess because I would have succeeded at building that kind of a following and that kind of stuff. It just is something that, you know, I've always said, like, if I put myself out there, I'm able to create a following. I'm able to create the traction. And it's just a, it's a talent, a gift. I don't know, or a curse. I, I'm not sure which it is, you know, yeah. but, but, it, but it works. And I think because I spent so much of my life driven by the opinions of other people and gaining my ego out of that space that I would have run myself into the ground and, yeah. you know, truly crashed and burned at a hard level. Now I'm like, you know, and it's funny because, you know, a lot of people in my life, they'll see, you know, whether it's the haters come out or whatever it is when I put content out or share something and they're like, you don't need those voices. I'm like, I'm not listening to those voices. Like I'm people ask me all the time, do you see what I put on social media? I'm like, no, I'm actually the worst. I use it because you got to use it in today's world to put your stuff out there. But the truth is, if I'm not directly connected and interested in you specifically and what you're doing, I'm not watching. So it's and I'm honest about it. Like I am, a, I, I guess in that way, I'm a very arrogant ass. But <laughs> the truth is, like, 
I can't, I can't remember the last time somebody's like, do you see what I put on social media? I'm like, I, I'm, I can't remember the last time I was like, yeah, yeah, I saw that. I'm like, no, I didn't see it. Cause I'm not looking. Right. It's been not, several nights obsessing about it. Yeah. yeah that's, like uh, I'm not looking for me either. And it's funny yeah. to me cause I went through a season this, this last year where I had a real big surge, like talking about the black lives matter movement and being a parent of black children and obviously being married, having a black spouse and, you know, really becoming passionate because my family had a lot of attacks and all of a sudden I'm going from like, 30 likes on Instagram to like 5,000, 10,000. I had videos that were getting 200,000 views and stuff like this. I didn't even know because yeah. I'm not, I don't care. Like so, I'm not keeping track. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. If my worth is built on that, then it's a pretty shitty amount of worth because we all know that whether it's social media, whether it's this podcast or my podcast or something, they're all temporary spaces. And they're going to go. So I, I then that just means I'm I'm setting myself up for an inevitable failure down the road. Yeah, yeah. You're investing in something that is that is temporal, which is philosophically a, a, like a pretty uh, amazing you know allegory for <laughs> so many of the struggles. Yeah, and it, and I mean, if you do go down that, it's just more temptation to be less authentic. Right. Yeah, and I think you know this has always made me like the the worst life coach on the planet. And yet it's what I love the most. Like I get my thrills out of the fact that I do so much coaching and, and, and guiding with people, but like, I don't make it this platform that I build on because if I'm just getting out there to build an audience so that a few people will buy my time and help me pay my bills again, I'm, I'm inflating my ego for a terminal end because really, and it, it's interesting to me, I, I probably piss off a lot of coaches that I'm friends with because their cycle is keep building the next thing somebody needs and lead them to the next thing they need. And I'm like, isn't the point of this to get people to the point they don't need you anymore? Like, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Like, it's why my business consulting, I, you know, I spent a lot of years doing really high level business consulting and it got invited by Richard Branson to come to his house and teach. Like I had, I hit the pinnacle of some of those things. But I built my system so that in three months, you didn't need to talk to me ever again, which sounds stupid when it comes to business. But when it comes to a personal legacy, that's what I want. I There's not a single person who hasn't worked with me in the last five, six years of my life on a coaching standpoint who can't tell you that it wasn't successful at a huge level and will tell you absolutely foremost, the only reason they want to talk to me is because we're friends. They yeah. don't, they don't ever need to call me and ask for advice again because yeah. they've gotten what I have to offer and I'm not offering anything else. Yeah. You're, so, you're not making people dependent on you, which no. is which model of the church. The church that model. I yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's why I'm that way. Like I think had I not gone through so much of that, like deconstruction of working in the church, I think I probably would have easily fallen into the model of, of building a coaching business where I could be probably making $5 million a year as a coach and, and staying busy. And, you know, but then I'd be, all I'd be doing is making videos online all the time and producing content, making posts and all these different things. And I'd be driven by the expectations of others versus doing what I love. And yeah. so, you know, now I get to go out there and, and, and it's niche, you know, I help people just get their inside and outside aligned, which is what I did in business for years. But if you yeah. don't, if you're not looking for that and you're not willing to do the work, then you don't need to talk to me and I don't need to convince you to talk to me. You know, if you need it and, yeah. and, and I can prove that I'm valuable because I've done it. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is not, I'm not teaching something I don't understand. 
A hundred percent. So, so here's, here's one of the, the questions, you know, when we talked, I mean, this was probably maybe a year or two ago, we, we, we talked, uh, and reconnected, you know, I hadn't talked to you since, you know, we were doing ministry stuff together. Right. Uh, since you had come out, come out here to, to Denver and hung out, uh, that week with Allison and, and, uh, you know, I was like, holy shit, you know, <laughs> I had gone through a bunch of change. Yep. Um, you had gone through a bunch of change and you were still talking about, you know, not wanting to necessarily uh, build your platform upon, you know, any type of like particular apologetic uh, of, you know, uh, uh, you know, coming out or, you know, you weren't, you, right. were, you weren't looking to build your platform on that, but you were still wanting to engage the church in some type of like authentic yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that that for you has been a struggle has been hard to, oh, it's to absolutely. You know. It's, 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 it's like, again, rushing into a freaking inferno with a water pistol in your hand. It's a joke to some extent, but it's interesting. I, I think it would be an ill spent reality for me to have the journey that I have to be where I'm at, because, you know, we, as we all go through that journey, like my, the core, the core components of my faith and my understanding of God and my relationship to God aren't, different at all. They're, they're not different at all. They haven't shifted one bit, but my understanding of theology and practice and culture and those things is obviously vastly different. And actually it's not that they're different. I'm just finally admitting what I always thought and being honest about it. But the thing is, is I understand what the other side's talking about. I understand where the other side's at and I understand what both sides need to bring to the table. Like, I'm not one to come to the church. Like, I say it all the time. And I've been through some crazy ups and downs. Like, I've I've gone and been a part of and, and participated in churches where I know good and damn well, they don't want me there because I'm gay and they don't know what to do with it. You know, I mean, I dealt with it with family stuff with not being able to baptize my daughter in a church that says everybody's welcome all the time, no matter what, nobody's perfect and anything's possible, but they don't actually believe it. It's just great marketing, mm. you know? And yet I participated in it because I understand where they're at. And my challenge, I think my challenge, Cortland, I think at this point is to help churches just say, whether it's the LGBTQ conversation or any other conversation, it could be race in America right now. I, it's just economics and socialism and all these different things we're talking about. I think church, and this is true of any organization that has a tenet of faith based underneath and that doesn't have to be religious that's what's so funny i think we we use the term faith and we automatically assume this means religious it doesn't necessarily mean religious and i think any group that adheres to a set of faith needs to be bold enough to say that's where i'm at even if we don't agree but be willing to accept the disagreement of the other party and i think that's where the church has really screwed up in the last well, maybe forever, but specifically in America, in our American history, in American evangelical Christianity, I think where they've missed the boat and the church has lost any any chance of influencing culture at a great level is because few few leaders are strong enough to stand up and say, I disagree or I don't believe. And 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 basically they neuter themselves at that point. Like I, I told the pastor who wouldn't let me baptize my daughter. I said, I, I'm fine with your decision. Like I could respect that. Had you told me that to start with, but you didn't, you mm -hmm. told me something different. And then when it became reality and you had to face it and deal with it, then you were honest with me. So you got like, I would respect you more if you'd have said from day one, no chance in hell. I'm fine with that. This is the organization you lead and your set of beliefs. And I am not here to tell you you're wrong. 
I'm okay with that. But you also have to give me the same level of respect in return. And I think that's where, I I think that's part of the reason that there's so much relational healing with my family, for instance. Like I tell my mom all the time, I'm not expecting you to ever change your mind or actually agree with the fact that I'm, I am out living as a gay man, married to another man, have left my marriage and all the, you know, my first marriage. And I don't live a traditional evangelical white Christian middle-class life. You know, I'm okay. If you don't agree, what I need you to do is be my mom and love me just the same. Yeah. And, you know, and, and telling her, I'm okay for you to tell me you disagree. That's okay. But, but what it can't do is drive a wedge in the way we love each other. Yeah, it can't lead to a to a to a sense of inauthenticity right. where we are allowing people to try to claim some type of, you know, that this all are welcome message while still not genuinely authentically analyzing that that well, may not very see, this is the problem. So we can take it outside the church and then we can go to like all the conversations about race in America right now, right? Like if we're not all actually welcome at the table at any level of the conversation, then nobody's welcome at all. And it's all about division, right? So I can mm-hmm. understand that because there's so much of that movement that's happened that I will fight for because I want to represent my kids and my spouse really well, because I am able to say more as a white man in America, like that's real. But at the same time, if I'm give like frowned upon because I'm a white man with privilege in America, then what's, what's the difference? And so Mm -hmm. we have to be honest about those things and go, look, we have to come to the table and go, we may not agree. We may disagree. We may have different experiences. We may not feel the same thing, but we're willing to come to the table and give each other space and time and place and just be with each other. Like that it changes everything. Like if everybody agreed, and I think that's what kills me is so much of the conversations in, in our culture and in our religious environments and things are like this idea that we somehow need to come together and be some, you know, very sterile, you know, all in agreement conformist group of people who are happy and hold hands and look the same. Like how boring is that shit? Like, yeah. I don't want to be a part of that. Like I want somebody to challenge me. I I still like the times when somebody goes, are you sure when it comes to your stance on sexuality, God, the Bible, all these things, are you sure? Not always. Yeah. Not yeah. always. I'm not, but I've made a yeah. decision and I stand on my decision, but that doesn't mean I'm not asking questions still. And I should have the freedom to say that. And it yeah, should but- also not drive someone to go great. Now I can fix you. Like that's, you know, <laughs> again, when it's agenda driven, like it, then all authenticity is off the table. I loved, right. I loved in, in our, in our interview we did with Micah J. Murray, uh, he was talking a lot about, you know, it's an experiment, you know, yes. I mean, all of this theology, all of this belief, all of this practice, this is an experiment that we are doing. And let's, let's look at it that way to say, I'm experimenting with, you know, not believing in God, you know, right. <laughs> like, I, right. like, and that's, that's fine. You know, right. like, 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 like this isn't where I'm going to stay. Right. Uh, because nobody is no, nobody is going this, this clinging on to the fact that we've arrived somewhere is counterproductive to authenticity. <laughs> you know, and I think that's, that's, it's just crazy to me. Like, and you go back to like other great leaders, like all of them. And I, you know, it's funny to me, even like, you know, the church is really good about throwing shade at Charles Darwin, right? Cause you know, he comes up with this idea of evolution and people are like, Oh, he's the devil. He's, he's like throwing the finger to God, fuck creation, this whole thing. But we never recognize the fact that even Darwin said on his deathbed, I could be wrong. Like I could like great thinkers are willing to say that. Like you don't have like 
I've never read, I grew up reading and being taught through reading the Aristotles and the Socrates and Pliny and, and all these great philosophers of ancient times all the way through Solzhenitsyn and all these guys who are writing in modern times and literature. And what I love about these guys as they think, as they, as they are, um, you know, building their philosophy of life and, and the journey Every one of them said, but we still have to ask questions. We still have to have room to grow. I don't always know the answer. And yeah. it's funny to me that like the one place that supposedly is the hope of all mankind, the church says we can't ask questions. Like, right. I know. And it, that's it blows me away. violence, right? I mean, right. and on either side, that's, the, that's, sure. you know, like, well, and I mean, even, that's the thing, like, when you look at the narrative of what we what we teach or have been taught in church and what the Bible just has in its pages, and you stop and think, and it's not about the contradiction of is there a God, is there not a God, is this how it works, is this not, but like, I just take little examples, like, if everything was formulaic and everything was so static and so set in stone, then Jesus wouldn't have healed nine different blind people nine different ways. There would have been one way to heal a blind man. You know, there, that's like, it's so many things like, why would like, yes, Jesus looked at people who were screwing their life up and said, you shouldn't do that. It's not good. But what he didn't do is look at him and go, you fucker, you're going to hell. Like they'd never happen. Like God didn't even do that in the garden of Eden. Adam and Eve screw up. And what does he do? He shows up the, to walk with them the same way he did the day before. And his only question is, where the hell are you? Like, I can't, yeah. that, like, I'm still here. And the, the screw up was us going, oh, I didn't fit it in the box. Like we did yeah. that. And who and who told you? Right. right. I mean, that's the thing that I love about that. You know, like 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 who told you? I mean, like, right. like, honestly, the the reconciliation of the church to the world or the unchurched or whatever could be summed up, in my opinion, in that one question. Who told who told you you were lost? <laughs> who told you you were naked? The inconvenient truth of what we won't teach in church because it opens questions would be, why did Jesus then say the kingdom of heaven is within you? But yet, yeah. you know, and, and I mean, I love this. I, I can hold this up. They won't see this on the podcast, but you know, my, for Christmas, my grandmother gave everybody David Jeremiah's new book, you know, about heaven. And I'm like, why is somebody writing a damn book on this stuff? Like if, if I, if it's really that good when I'm dead and gone, then why it doesn't matter what I read today. It is, it, what bearing is that anyway, first of all, but second of all, like then, but, but how did I reconcile that if the Bible talks about heaven, but then Jesus says heaven's here, it's not a place. It's a, it's a state of being. It's a state of mind. Like, what do I do with that? What do I do with these things? Like, you know, the, the, the religion teaches us that you can't trust your heart because it's wicked because we got one verse, one passage in the heart thousands that the heart is deceitful and wicked in every way. There are 600 other verses that tell us the heart is the wellspring of life. Lean in. Look, why would then the story of God looking for David to become the king of Israel? Why then would God have this passage that says he was looking throughout the land, looking at the hearts of all mankind? If the heart is intrinsically wicked, then why did God need to look at it? It makes no sense. Like if we stop for a second and take the whole, you got to take it all. And when you take it all, there is no concrete. There is no absolute. The only absolute is there. It seems to be a creator who cares enough about his creation to continue to stay present. Even when we fuck everything up, like that's the we only got, thing I can walk away with. That's halfway consistent. We got Michael preaching. I love it. <laughs> 
So it just it's one of those things like this is why because I, I occasionally I'll get I still there are there are some brave people who will ask me to come preach still. Then I'm like, I can't like because if you give me the stage, I'm going to fuck your whole church up. Like you cannot give me a church. Like it's going to be bad. I promise. Like and I, I know that. So I stay away from it. You know, yeah. and like I have I've got two people that are like consistently knocking on my door going, I'll give you a quarter million dollars to start a church. And I'm like, I don't know another way to make church work. And until I figure that out, I'm not touching it because all it's got, all I'm going to do is perpetuate the thing that I walked away from and said, screw this. I'm done. Yeah. 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 Josh, you were, you were saying something. Do you remember what you were saying earlier? Oh, no. I, (laughs) well, one thing I wanted to bring up was like, you know, the questions that we asked and the stuff that the formulas that were given. One of the most interesting things I think is, you know, this question that we seem to be all, or at least the church and Christians and evangelicals seem to be concerned about is, well, how do I, how do I, you know, experience heaven or how do I get to heaven? Right. When I die or, or uh, how do I have eternal life? Well, it's funny. Like that question was asked to Jesus, you know, Hey rabbi, how do I experience eternal life? And with what we were given uh, growing up is, well, you know, you would expect him to say, yeah, believe in me for your, forgiveness of your sins and here, eat this wafer. Um, but he says, he asks, he, he, he responds with a question, which is, well, what's in the Torah? How do you read it? Right. Meaning like the answer's there. And he says, um, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, you're right. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't say you're wrong. He said, you're right. And, yeah. uh, that's, it's, it's crazy. I don't, you know, it always amazes me. Cause I used to say this all the time. I'm usually always like, Oh, you got to follow all the rules and keep all the commands. And I'm like, it's funny because the, the, the scripture that says, keep my, if you love me, you keep my commands is in the new Testament. It's Jesus saying this, right. But what commands did he give? And it's exactly what you just said, Josh. He only, the only two commands Jesus gave in his earthly ministry that we have recorded, let's just put it that way. Right. So this is a, again, all presumptive on a, a handful of writings and books and passages that we actually have versus what we, what may or may not have really happened. But the only recorded thing we have from Jesus is love God, love others. Like, yeah. And then, and not only that, love, love others as you love yourself. So mm-hmm. I think that caveat all by itself, like that, that ratchets things up a notch. And it's like, and Jesus said, all the law summed up in this, like everything, this all you need. That's it. Yeah. 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 Uh, so Michael, I know we're, we're, we're pushing probably what our normal time is for an interview. I want, you know, for people to be able to get connected with you. Can you share, you know, kind of a little bit of what you're doing, uh, sure. with, you know, your work with people through social media and all that sort of thing, your coaching, uh, how, how can people get connected with you? Listen to your podcast, obviously, which we plugged already, but plug it again. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the simplest place to connect is right. I, I've got a really crappy website. <laughs> So everybody can go there. It's just michaelrobison.cc. And so there's there's tabs there that talks about, you know, my coaching in general is, you know, really just helping people get aligned. And they don't need to have my story. Um, I think a lot of times some people see my story and they're like, I, I, I do get a lot of people obviously who are like trying to figure out their faith or coming out late in life. Um, but I have a lot of moms that are coming to me. They're like in their midlife crisis, like, I still want to be a functional adult. How do I get there? And how do I make what's inside me match on the outside? 
Um, yeah, so I want to tell you, I, I got mad respect for your shitty website because uh, when I'm looking for anything of like spiritual or, uh, you know, I guess transcendent uh, uh, significance online, uh, a good website is the first red flag. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you if you have a fancy website, yeah. I think you're trying to bullshit me. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You know, it's really funny is why well, I don't like we're going to connect because I'm putting out some piece of content somewhere that makes sense. Not because my website's good. If my website's the only thing that pulls you in, then I'm a damn good marketer. But, exactly. but, but again, I don't like, I'm not, I'm not trying to build a, a, a massive brand here. Like I just want to do what I love doing. And that's, you know, the, that's where the coaching thing comes in. And so I, I actually, you know, I do one-on-one, I do group coaching. Uh, you know, I take on all of it. I still do my business coaching for people who are interested because a lot of times they need that. And I, you know, if there's anything any of us have ever learned in working for the church, you really got to get things aligned or they don't work. And I, you know, take those skills and, 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 put those to practice. And, um, but you know, my social media is all connected on that website. The podcast is connected on that website. Um, it's real easy for people to get in touch if they're curious. And, you know, I just tell people all the time, just reach out. I mean, my email is real easy. It's just Michael at michaelrobison.cc. If they just want to ask questions, I love the chance to dialogue and it, you know, it's not loaded. I'm not trying to like fill a pipeline so I can call you and try to sell you some high ticket product or coaching sales pitch or something like that. It's not, not what I do. Um, I, I think, I think one of the things that most of the world's missing is we've all tried to turn our story into a platform versus just sharing our story because it has value. And, you know, for me, I think I have this beautiful story and if, if it helps people, that's great. If it scares people, I like that too. I don't really care. I'm going to share it um, because it, it's also where I live in freedom too. And so there's a lot for me of being able to share my story continues to allow me the chance to live fully free in who I am, which is something I spent the first half of my life being scared to death of. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, fantastic. I feel great. What a fun conversation. I I am just blown away at the, you know, caliber of, of guests and the amount of stuff that I'm learning through doing this podcast. It's it's fun. It's been really cool. Josh, what do you think? Oh yeah. Oh man. I just I thought Michael, super amazing person. Um has some really great things uh to say, very inspirational. Um, I definitely want to encourage all the listeners to check him out, um, see what he's yeah. doing. Yeah. And he invited us, it was after we stopped recording, but he invited us to come down to Nashville and stay and hang out with him. So we're going to do that post COVID. Yeah. Once, once we can travel again, Josh and I are going to go down to Nashville. There's so many people in Nashville. Nashville is like a little like Mecca of like evangelical, uh, and like, evangelical like i mean it's, like, it's like a weird little mecca of like church influencers so we could we could do a bunch of cool interviews in nashville yeah that's true that's so i didn't even think about that huh. dude i'm i'm excited when we can do these episodes and we can be face to face and i can like breathe on you and and it is gonna be awesome give me all the breath that's what i want <laughs> We have, we have some incredible guests who are coming uh, in 2021. By the time this episode gets out, it's not 2021 yet, but it will be. And apparently the world's going to be perfect. Yay. Right? Happy New Year. Everything. 2020. I was so, talking about 2020 with 
uh, my wife and how at the beginning of the year, everybody was super excited. We're like, oh yeah, 2020, it's going to be amazing. And we tied it into vision and having new vision for our lives and all this stuff and whatever. And uh, well, I mean, it... (laughs) It definitely opened our eyes, let's say that, especially yeah. to revealing um revealing people's innermost hatreds. <laughs> let's 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 do that. I mean, like we've always joked, uh 70% of people stop listening, so we got the 30% <laughs> left hanging on here at the end of the episode. Yeah. And, and we like to just hang out with you guys. You guys, you you fellows, uh, girls, gals, non-binary beauties uh, are the ones that we're here for. So I, I'm curious, Josh, for you, 2020, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. What, what is it? What has it been for you? What's it meant for you? Has it been awful? Good? Um, it's, <laughs> it's been interesting. Uh, honestly, I'm super happy that... Uh, uh, myself and my family have been able to, and no one in my immediate family have been, have, we've all been safe. You know, we've all been keeping healthy. Um, no one's contracted, uh, COVID and well, I, no, my sister, my half sister did, uh, she was, but, um, she is healthy. Um, and, that that was a good accomplishment basically because of my wife's immune, uh, lack of immunity, um, after many years of medical things going on there, but, um, we're good. Uh, but, uh, you know, it has revealed certain people in my like friend groups or friend circles. I'm like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know you thought that way. Like, I, I I think one of them that I don't really talk to anymore turned out, I think they're like really big QAnon people. And I'm like, Oh, Oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't want to talk so much with you. Yeah. 2020 <laughs> really brought out the right wingers, the closeted right wingers. <laughs> like, yeah. I thought you were normal. And they're like, there's microchips in the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, oh, that's that's who you are. <laughs> Glad to meet the real you. <laughs> I mean, I'll still talk to you. I'll still hang out, like uh, on occasion, you know. But for sure, for sure, uh, I love conversations <laughs> with those people. I, I regularly, uh, you know, I've got a friend who's like, you know, if God, God's gonna, God's gonna let happen what happens. You know, God's in control, and I'm like, mm, <laughs> I don't think I ever want to let you babysit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna come home. My kid's gonna be run over by a car. My house is gonna be on fire, and he's gonna be like, "God, God, let it happen." <laughs> oh man, no! Yep. But uh, next year is gonna be good. I'm starting a new role at my job, which is Congrats. really cool. Yeah, can you talk about it? Is it secret? Oh, it's not secret. I'm basically I'm I'm leaving the. This is going to be my last semester of teaching Woo! and I'm uh, moving into, um, uh, marketing. So cool. Fun. Are you, are you going to get to travel? I feel like when I was over at your house the other day, it, Michelle was saying that you were going to get to maybe travel or be a part of trips or. Yeah, there might be, uh, an occasional 
trip because part of um, part of the school, there's a, a one of the pillars of our school is um, service trips, right? And so they travel all around. They do they do local they do a lot of local stuff. They do uh, national things, national trips, and then the um, international trips as well. So I'm sure that uh, they want me to work on some stuff for them, which may include some travel. Cool. Cool. That's fun. That is a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. I, 2020 for me, 2020 for me has been, it started as a fucking nightmare. Uh, I lost my shit early on <laughs> <laughs> because I, I didn't realize, I didn't realize for about two years of my life, I had been compensating my, my severe, uh, I don't know, issues with uh, myself by just filling every single moment. Uh, this is my, for my Enneagram folks who are uh, Enneagram nerds, my, mm -hmm. my sevenness was showing strong. Uh, I was like, got to experience everything. And so, yeah, I was packed uh, with a thing every night, every, you know, three weeks I was going on trips uh, mm -hmm. seeing different people, getting drunk with different people. And, and all of that was great. Um, but 2020 has, has, you know, made that impossible. And originally I was like, fuck, this is, this is terrible. Um, uh, but it allowed me to get to know myself in, in some new and some cool ways and, and really just like kind of accept myself in, in some ways. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful for 2020. I'm, I'm, saddened by how many people we've lost how many people i know who have lost people uh the amount of tragedy mm -hmm. that has incurred it's it's real and it is significant it's meaningful uh to me and i don't want to make light at all uh, of that but also for my personal self you know we've we've been lucky uh like you say we, we haven't had a personal inner uh, action with COVID and, and, and we've been able to stay safe myself and my immediate family and, and immediate friends. Uh, but, uh, I've learned, I've learned a lot about myself and my favorite thing about 2020 has been starting this podcast. This uh -huh. beautiful love affair. Between there you go. And I, <laughs> and our wonderful guests. So <laughs> yeah, right we have a lot of we have a lot of cool guests coming up. Uh, we I want to I want to kind of say we we're gonna try to do every Tuesday, but I also am gonna give myself uh, and Josh a, a little bit of grace to say if we miss a Tuesday, we're sorry. Uh, that might happen. Uh, we want to we don't want to feel the pressure of you know having to deliver an episode every Tuesday. Uh, I think that we we probably will, uh, but we also are gonna let ourselves you know have. Uh, some leeway. So if, hey, if you know, it is what it is. I, I sometimes when, sometimes with the podcast that I follow that they, do, if they don't put one out, right. And I'm like, Oh, when's the next one? And then it's like a little gift when it shows up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. That like, anticipation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We want to, we want to tease you a little bit and then leave you wanting more. <laughs> That's uh, that's how we're gonna do it, and uh, until we can build a following large enough to be able to finally monetize through the thereafter OnlyFans page, <laughs> apps and phones, probably in 2022. I think yeah. I think we'll have enough sexy content built up to launch that OnlyFans in 2022. So that's a lot of twos. Uh, 
two, two, two. Uh, yeah, it's it's been great. We want to ask, as always, uh, if you have enjoyed the podcast. Uh, I, I'm terrible at reviewing. I listen to 10 plus podcasts a week. I'm regularly bringing on new podcasts to listen to. Uh, I've been binging a ton of uh, a People's Theology podcast uh, this last week which is a new one for me and it's been awesome. Uh, I just subscribed to uh, Dustin Kensrue's podcast, Carry the Fire. Uh, I love podcasts. Uh, I also, I don't think I've talked about on an episode, the Dirty Rotten Church Kids uh, podcast, uh, but I mean, I've talked about them, but I, I, I joined my first Patreon. Uh, I'm, I'm a Patreon. I'm a patron of the DRCK uh, podcast. And fuck, that's cool, man. It's been, it's been a really fun experience. So uh, I've decided to just totally hijack it. Uh, Josh and I, we're never going to start our own Patreon. But if you want to hang out with me, join the Dirty Rotten Church Kids <laughs> Patreon. They have a cool Discord channel. And it's now mind <laughs> it's now where i live so you know why give us money when you can give them money they're doing cool stuff it's like four bucks a month and then i'm on their discord channel like every day it's been super fun uh i originally started this whole thing by saying i'm terrible at going and reviewing and rating podcasts that i love but it really does make a huge difference and i've tried to get better about it uh when i love a podcast i hop over to itunes uh, Apple podcast and leave a little rating and review it, it it really changes the way that your podcast gets uh, exposure through those apps and so it also makes us feel uh, good yeah do it we're Which all about all, the feels we're all about the feels uh, Janice left us a review we got a shout out to Janice Legato who uh, was yeah, on yeah. our podcast then reviewed our podcast on Apple podcasts and uh, she left us a fun review. And so go over, check out her review. Uh, she had a Zenga shout out in her. Did you see that? <laughs> like the best podcast on Zenga or something like that. Awesome. Yeah, I, I'd be remiss if I don't have a Zenga reference in this episode of the Thereafter podcast. Go you right just review. call it the Zenga podcast. The Zenga podcast. Uh, not here for long, but will be memorable forever. Uh, also, uh, follow us on Instagram, Instagram at thereafter podcast. Uh, we are still working on the website and we'll have that for you. Hopefully here in the next couple episodes. Uh, and there's going to be some cool stuff coming along with that. So keep an eye out until then, uh, Josh and I will be hanging out in quarantine, uh, celebrating our new year. And we will catch up with all of you wonderful, beautiful people in the thereafter. 